So, we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We're finishing chapter 4 today. We have had a couple weeks uh, in uh, Mark 4 where he has been giving some teaching on the parable of the, of the sower, and we have been learning what it means to be gospel sharers and people who have the gospel in their hearts and who live by the gospel and how that is uh, like a plant growing. Uh, and we've, we've been profiting from these teachings uh, in, in, in Mark chapter 4, but there is a, a definite transition here at the end of Mark uh, 4 where he goes from talking to the crowds to having over the next several chapters some very intensive time with his disciples and some experiences that happen with the disciples over these next couple chapters are really critical to understanding who Jesus is and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In fact, the two primary questions that, that run through the gospel of Mark is who is Jesus? And when we answer that question, what does it mean to follow him? And so for the next several chapters, which will mean several sermons, we will be seeing a very personal, direct encounters with Jesus through the disciples as a way of seeing what being a disciple is, right? And so uh, the key question that kind of frames all of the, the chapters that are, we're going to be going through, chapters into chapter 4, 5, and, and much of chapter 6, is, is the question that the disciples ask at the very end of this passage, where they, after seeing Jesus do one of the greatest miracles he does, calming the wind and the, and the waves, they say, who is this? Who is this? You see, that's the question of Mark. Who are we learning about? Why do we care about Jesus and what he did 2,000 years ago? The, the, the reason is the answer to the question, who is this that the disciples grappled with in this boat, is the same question that we need to grapple with, and it is equally relevant and pressing. It is the most critical question that we could possibly deal with. Who is Jesus? If Jesus is who the Gospels present him has, then having a relationship with Jesus is the most important, the most fulfilling, the most necessary thing that any one of us can have. If Jesus is not the person that, that he is presented in the Gospels, then he is, he is like any other historical figure. It really doesn't matter how much you believe in Abraham Lincoln, Right? Abraham Lincoln was a great man. I, I hope you believe he existed. I hope you believe he did good things. But, but it doesn't change your life. That's not true of the question, who is this about Jesus? And the, and the reason that we know that's not just an ordinary question is because of how the disciples learned to ask the question in this passage. They are faced with a storm, a serious, terrifying storm. And we all know about storms. We maybe have not been on the Sea of Galilee, but we all know storms. I mean, we, we, we see uh, just bad weather come in, and, and it's frightening, especially when we live in a place called Tornado Alley. I mean, we, <laughs> we look at those clouds and we ask the question, you know, is that a funnel cloud? That's always coming out of nowhere, and we always live in a little bit of, of dread when we see storm clouds. But, but storms don't just have to be physical acts of weather. I, I believe that this passage is using the story of a storm to say life has chaos. 
Life has tumult and unexpected things. Life has overwhelming circumstances that can be equated with storms. And storms are universal experiences of sudden and overwhelming change. Our health. We can have a sudden storm when our health becomes questionable. Or we we start to think maybe our health is, is bad or we go to the doctor's office and the doctor comes in and his face just says it all. This is not going to be good news today. Finances and money. And we, 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 we go through experiences where all of a sudden our sense of security with our finances is just upside down. All of a sudden the stock market goes haywire and our plans of retirement or our plans for, for relaxation or the courses that we had for, for uh, our future are suddenly put in doubt. Job insecurity. We've been fired. Uh, pop quizzes. You know, you thought your grade was going to be great, and then all of a sudden they pop quiz, and, uh, and your grade's not great. What, what, what storms do is that they, they, they activate our fear, right? Fear is what takes over and takes control in storms. Another experience like fear is anxiety. Fear and anxiety come kind of side by side. They both occur Uh, when we face storms. And the reason that that fear is such an issue for us is that fear is controlling. Fear takes control. I I remember um, when I got uh, married to my my current wife, Becky. (laughs) Uh, My only wife, Becky, we we I I married. We all know that my wife is uh, is in the medical field, so so she's an expert about all things medical. And so I thought that I had married WebMD, and I spent the first several months of our marriage just going into flights of panic about every uh, illness or every condition or every ache or every pain or every swell here or there. And I would, I would just think that this is it. This is, this is the death note. And I would go to Becky and I would, just, I would terrorize her with all of these questions. And I remember early on, I, I was feeling my neck and I had a swollen lymph node. I was like, oh no, I'm, this is, this is, uh, this is going to be a cancer. And I, I revealed to my wife how controlled by fear I was. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't think rationally. I was in fits. I think she probably thought uh, about divorce at some point in that process. I mean, I, I was a terrible husband, and I had to go to the doctor, and I had to go through this you know, drama of, what is this? And it was just a, a swollen lymph node. But it activated all of my fears. And, and I can tell you, as I look back on that, where was my faith? I was a, I was a believer, I, I, I was a, 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 a student of Scripture, but that fear was so present and so controlling and so overwhelming. That was a storm that I couldn't see anything outside of the storm itself. And my faith seemed far and distant and unhelpful. What fears are controlling you? 
today? What fears, what anxieties are you struggling with today? You see, a fear can be kind of the opposite of our mission statement where we help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus. A fear can be so controlling that we effectively live in the fear. And if we're living in the fear, we're unable to to experience the, the peace that comes from faith. So the reason that this passage is here for us The reason that Jesus uh, allowed his disciples to go through this storm and that this storm was recorded is so that we are able to orient ourselves in the terrifying storm by reminding ourselves, who is this? You see, when we grasp who Jesus is, we are delivered from the power of our fears. When we grasp who Jesus is, we are delivered from the power of our fears. And this passage, which is a personal experience of the disciples, shows us exactly how that happens. There are going to be three revelations of who Jesus is that are going to help the disciples and help us be delivered from the power of fear in our life. So as we go through this passage, we're going to look at these three revelations of who Jesus is that will deliver us from the power of fear in our life. Now, first revelation that we have is that Jesus is the one with us in the storm. Jesus is the one with us in the storm. We're told, uh, so, so the passage, Jesus just finishes this teaching. Jesus was teaching in a boat, and then Jesus says, let us go now to the other side. And it's evening. And so Jesus, in the evening, calls all of his disciples not to, to have a nice rest or, or go to the, uh, the chilies and have a, a nice meal. He wants to continue doing more ministry, or he wants to get to another place, and he doesn't want to waste the night. He wants to get somewhere. So he calls all of his disciples to get in the boats with him and to, to make this journey to the other side. And on the, on the way, this terrible storm happens. It terrifies the disciples And of course, Jesus demonstrates his power over nature by calming the storm with a word. So before we get too far into this passage, I do want to uh, address the question that that sometimes comes up as we live in a a modern scientific age about miracles. Does being a a student of science, does being a believer in, in science and, and the, 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 the regularity of nature and the observability of nature, is that a contradiction with the, the possibility of miracles? Is there a, a tension between being a person who is committed to the, the study of science and believing that miracles happen, or believing that the, the, the stories in the scripture are actual miracles? Uh, so, so we need to talk about this because I know either you have uh, a personal question about that or maybe you have friends that have questions about that. And so there's a, a, a lot of great resources that you can uh, look up on, on the, the idea of miracles and science. But one that I, I really like is a guy by the name of Vern Poitras who is a scientist and a, a, a theologian. And he takes up this question of the, the of ability for miracles and science to, to, to coexist. 
And he actually helps us see that it is because of, of God ruling the universe that it is true that God can both uh, establish science and the regular processes of science, but also establish opportunities and moments where he breaks those, those rules or he interrupts the regularities. So I want to read this quote, and then we can discuss it a little bit. Vern Poitras says, According to Scripture, God is continually active in the regularities of the world as well as in any unusual events. His governing word is the real source of what scientists call scientific law. He is the king and lord over both the regularities and the exceptions. The regularities in God's rule are what make science possible. Far from being in tension with science, God is the foundation of science. In addition, God is a personal God, not a mechanical system. So we can also bring about exceptions to the regularities when he wishes. Miracles are not only possible, but are understandable and natural given the fact that at times, God may have special purposes that lead to special actions. So what Vern Poitras is telling us here is that there's, there, there are two truths that we can uphold with a biblical worldview. The first is the, the, the regularities of nature that allow science to be possible. One of the amazing things about the universe is that it's a universe. It is a cosmos as opposed to a chaos. The whole reason that the world has order and structure and predictability is as opposed to chaos and just uh, unending disruption is because God has ordered our world. He has ordered our world according to these scientific laws. And those scientific laws are the reason that we're able to make plans. They're the reason that we're able to predict uh, events. They're the reason that we're able to uh, make the most use out of this creation. And that is a gift of God, that we have a cosmos, a, a, an ordered universe. But God, standing behind the cosmos, is also a personal God. And he has, at his discretion, the choice of, of interrupting those regularities whenever he wishes, if he has a special reason to do so. A, a way of thinking about this might be thinking about your own home, all right? Especially if you have young kids, uh, you, you establish some rules. You establish some regularities. And one of the biggest regularities in my home is bedtime, right? Bedtime is set, and, and it is good. Everybody gets the sleep that they need. Everybody gets the rest and the boundaries that they need by having that bedtime. And that bedtime is the same day in and day out. My kids don't need to ask me, when's bedtime? Bedtime is always the same time. Except sometimes I like to have a little fun. I like to break the rules. I like to indulge by watching a movie or, or going out late or taking a vacation and I break the regularity of bedtime. But I do that not, in, not in, in opposition to the regularities, but to make a special emphasis of the interruption. But both are possible, you see. You can both have the regularities and the interruptions. And the reason that we can have both is because like a household is run by a, a person, our universe is run by a person, God. Right? 
So, so there is nothing illogical or impossible that God could create a universe that is orderly and regular and also interrupt it with times of miracles. And I think we should look at this miracle and take it at face value as a true, real miracle. Because one of the things that, that you notice as you read this passage carefully is it is just chock full of eyewitness details. This account just, just shows itself as the, the, the remembrances of someone who was there. I mean, look at some of these details. That, that like they, they just took Jesus in the boat that he was in. Uh, they, 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 the water was filling the, the, the boats, the description of the filling, the seeing Jesus sleeping on a cushion. The, the statement, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, that is such a raw statement, <laughs> such an uncouth statement to say to, to Jesus that it has all of the, the, the coloration of what was actually said and what actually happened. And so when we look at this story, it, it has that eyewitness flavor that makes us say, I think this probably happened. You know, he, he, he talks about it being an evening. We know exactly what time it was. And we, we, we know that this storm has a, 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 a terrifying nature to it because this account is being reported by fishermen, people who have been on the Sea of Galilee all of their life. They don't panic at any usual storm. But the storm that they were in on this particular night had them at the point of thinking this was their last night. They were screaming, we are perishing. This is a, 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 then we should, we should recognize that this storm is a particularly scary storm. They're in it in the nighttime. They can't see well. They're, they're uh, seeing the, the storm provide water that could be sinking or capsizing their boats. They are, 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 are seeing this all through experienced eyes. And so what we have in this account is a terrifying storm backed up by eyewitness reflections. Now there's something that I think we need to dwell upon at this point. These experienced fishermen are disciples. They're in this boat and a terrible thing is happening. So clearly... Terrible things do not happen if you're in the will of God, right? This is clearly evidence that they have gone astray. They have done something wrong. They need to repent because if your life is following God, it's going to be easy. It's going to be comfortable. It's not going to have anything bad happen to it. Well, that's not true if we look at this story, is it? Because this great danger, this life-threatening storm comes upon these disciples because they are in the will of God. They are obeying Jesus' instructions, let's get in the boat at nighttime and cross the sea. They are in this storm, their life is in danger because they are in the will of God. Does that surprise you? Is that counterintuitive to you? So often we think the safest place to be is in the will of God, right? That's not exactly true. Sometimes the will of God is the scary place, the dangerous place, the uncertain place. It is the place of faith. 
There is great danger on the path of the disciple. Go, go back to Jesus' teaching in, in the, the parable of the sower. What did Jesus say about some of the disciples in Mark 4, 17? He says, they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Do you see what Jesus is saying is typical of the life of a disciple? Persecution and tribulation is going to come to, some, to, to the people who are faithful to the word. That is not the occasion to say, I'm clearly not in the will of God, I've clearly got a mistake here, and I need to uh, cut bait. It is part of living according to the word. And so many of us have been uh, preached a very frail faith because we have been told that if you're in the will of God or if you're a Christian, everything's roses. Everything is easy. Nothing bad happens to you. But that's not the biblical faith. Being a biblical Christian, being someone rooted in the word, being someone seeking the will of God, will sometimes put you in a storm that terrifies you. In fact, I would say we should have concern if we are living a life of faith that never brings us into storms, that never brings us into persecution, that never brings us into tribulation. In fact, if your faith never puts you in danger or never costs you anything, are you sure that you're in the boat? Are you sure that you're in the boat? Or perhaps you are following a self-made faith, one that keeps you from real faith, keeps you from ever getting in the boat. So the disciples are in this terrible situation. They, they, they think they're perishing, and they go up to Jesus, who is asleep, and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That statement is so raw. That statement is so out of turn for a disciple to say to Jesus that you know it's exactly what was said, right? Teacher, do you not care? What is, what is revealed in that statement is the great doubts that this storm has created for these disciples, they are now wrestling with what can they truly believe, what is real. This storm is saying Jesus is probably not helpful. So, so look, there, there are two doubts that come out of this statement, teacher, do you not care? First of all, they call him teacher. A teacher is a, is a, is a, is a, a fine term to call Jesus. It's, a, it's an honorary term. There's nothing uh, out of place calling Jesus teacher in this passage. Except that teacher is a term that has no confidence that this person has power. Right? The word teacher is very much a human apprehension of Jesus. And so when, when they are saying teacher, the underlying doubt is, can you help? Are you able to help? 
It's a question of Jesus' ability. You see, the disciples are looking at the storm, and in their human assessment, the storm was clearly bigger than Jesus' power. When they are saying, can you help? (laughs) They're basically saying, can you grab a bucket? We need somebody to help get the water out of the boat. They are not expecting anything out of Jesus' mouth to stop the storm. They're looking for an extra set of hands. So there is this doubt in the storm of whether Jesus has the ability to help. But then the second doubt that is clear in this statement is, does Jesus care? Do you not care? And they said to Jesus, do you not care? And when they say that, the doubt there is, will you help? Right? Will you help? Are you willing to help? You see, in the storm, the doubt comes, does God even love me? This bad thing happened, can God even love me? Can he love me? Perhaps you have a concern that you are unlovable. Or perhaps you have a question that God truly is love. But in the question, do you not care, reveals the storm's ability to really arouse in our heart some deep doubts. Doubts that we might not even admit are there, except that the storm exposed them. And in that respect, there is a gift in the storm. Because what comes out in this panic, this is an area that the disciples' faith has not touched. And for them to be truly at peace, the gospel has to touch these doubts. And so there is a relief that the storm reveals the doubt. So when you are in a storm, when you are in a moment of chaos or anxiety or fear, there is an occasion here to say, why Am I not believing the gospel here? What are my doubts? Don't allow those exposed doubts to fester. Those doubts need to be discussed. So these questions, can he? Will he? Those doubts are are, are questions that limit our trust in Jesus, don't they? They limit then how much we will risk for Jesus. If we have doubts that Jesus can take care of us or that Jesus will take care of us, then we will not get in the boat, right? I'd like you to examine how much faith does your life require? How much faith does your life require? I mean, we are kind of all built around the fears and anxieties that teach us to be safe, to be secure, to be cautious, to be well-planned. And all of these things are good to a certain degree. I mean, they're all part of wisdom. You know, we don't want to be reckless. We don't want to be foolish. But sometimes we can be so committed to safety and security and protection that we won't let our kids have an ounce of fun. (laughs) <laughs> or, or we won't do a single thing that is outside of our comfort zone. 
And we look at ourselves decade after decade, not with lives that are are more courageous, but lives that are more contained, more boxed in, more routine. And my question to you, it may not be a storm. It may just be the, 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 the constant waves of life. Have they made you more of a person of faith or have they sort of put you in a safe place that doesn't need How much of your life does your faith require? Are are you living with the question, what does God want me to do? Or are you living with the questions, do I have enough money? Is it safe? Is it easy? Will I look weird? You see, the question here for us is, have we allowed these doubts already to shape us? But what is the very first proof that Jesus cares the very first proof that Jesus cares. He's in the boat. You see, he is in the boat. Sometimes we, we are in the storms and we're like, I don't feel him. I don't, I don't think he's there. I don't, I don't notice him. I don't see him. I don't think God is anywhere near. And yet he is in the boat. I, I'm reminded of a, 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 an incredible story from Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. Uh, Corey Ten Boom and, and her sister were put in a concentration camp in World War II Germany. And, and they were being terribly mistreated. They were put in a barracks, a terrible place to sleep. And it was infested with millions upon millions of fleas. And these fleas terrorized and harassed these young women in this barracks. And, and, and Corey Ten Boom is so despondent and her sister says we need to pray thanks for these fleas we need to pray to God thank you for the fleas she's like you are bonkers there is nothing about God's will or God's goodness in these fleas this is a God forsaken situation and yet they pray and it turns out after months of living in this barracks that it is discovered that the really cruel guards in this Nazi concentration camp, avoided these barracks because of the fleas. And so it is revealed to Corey Ten Boom that the fleas were actually God's way of keeping a much worse and much uh, meaner treatment from the guards by keeping them in a place that the guards did not want to go. And so she realized that even in the fleas, God was present. God was looking after them. My friends, you may feel like God is not there, but he is in the boat. He is in the barracks. He is in your storm. For the believer, Jesus may sometimes seem absent, but he is always in the boat. This is his promise. The last word he gave his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew is, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may not feel it, but God's promise is, I am with you always till the end of the age. And so, if you are in a storm, just like the disciples, we can always cry out to Jesus for help. He is the Savior whose name is Emmanuel. 
God with us. Now, the second revelation that I want us to recognize in this passage is that Jesus is our peace amidst the storm. Jesus is our peace. This terrible storm comes upon the disciples. They are panicking for their life. And then we're told about Jesus. And what is Jesus doing in this passage? It's remarkable. Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is sleeping in the middle of the storm. Now, the disciples' first reaction and, the disciple, and, and our reaction whenever we face a storm and we see our Savior sleeping is that we say, well, he's clearly careless. He is clearly oblivious. He clearly doesn't have his attention on me. Right? Now, that's what it looks like from the outside. But I want you to see that in the sleeping of Jesus is, is great comfort for us. First of all, it witnesses to Jesus' humanity. Jesus was, was full flesh and blood. He was human. He was uh, God incarnate, but he was human just like us. And his ability to sleep as a human in that boat models the faith of a son. It models the faith of a son. The fact that Jesus is sleeping in the midst of the storm was not evidence that Jesus did not care, but that he himself was not afraid. He was not worried. He was so unworried that he could sleep. Jesus' ability to sleep amidst the storm models the peace that is available to every believer who trusts in God as Heavenly Father. I know a lot of us are like, that's... That's a lot further than I could ever imagine being. But Jesus' humanity shows us that if we truly grasp the gospel, if we truly allow the gospel to penetrate all of our doubts, all of our fears, this is the sort of peace that can be ours in any storm. Now let me ask it a different way. I mean, we, we look at Jesus asleep and we start thinking, well, that's, he's careless. But let me ask you something uh, another way. What if Jesus were in the boat and he was scared? What if Jesus were in that boat scared instead of sleeping? Our greatest comfort is that Jesus doesn't panic. Our greatest comfort is that Jesus is calm, that Jesus is at peace. Our comfort is that the heart of Jesus is peace even when we are in a storm. Why? Because he is in control. You see, the thing that we learn at the end of the passage when he, he speaks to the storm to calm down, we learn that the one who is in the boat is also the one who is over the storm. Right? And he is seated on his throne. He is seated on his throne. He is not up in heaven pacing. He is not in heaven wringing his hands. He is not in heaven contemplating, what can I possibly do? He is seated like a perfect ruler who knows exactly what to do and is in control of every situation. We may be down here feeling like this is completely out of control. This is completely uh, utter chaos, but he is in control. And the good news of the gospel is that the one who is seated on the throne calls us to enter into his peace at any time by simply praying. 
One of my favorite passages, Philippians chapter 4, verses uh, uh, 6 and 7. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, we, we, we are in a storm in our life, and we cannot make sense of it. But there is a peace which surpasses all understanding, meaning you don't have to make sense of your storm. You don't have to be able to explain your storm to pray because there is a peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which is available to you to comfort you and to assure you that the one who is seated on the throne has your storm under his eye and it is under his control. I remember when I uh, made the decision to go to seminary. Oh, Becky and I made the decision to go to seminary. So we, it, was, uh, it was about 14 and a half years ago, um, 2008. We had, uh, we had a newborn baby boy, uh, and uh, we had two great jobs. I was an engineer, mechanical engineer. I had upward mobility. Becky had a, a great position at the local hospital. And uh, so we were financially very secure. And we had this little baby, and so we had, uh, we had everything that we needed to provide for this little baby. But I had this sense of call that maybe I'm not supposed to be an engineer. Maybe I'm supposed to be a pastor. Maybe I'm supposed to go back to school, go back to no income, go back to being a student. And then... 2008, October. Do you know what happens in October 2008? The financial crisis. Everything fell apart. The wheels of our economy went off the bus, right? And so there is no financial security. Jobs are, are we're heading into a recession. Every uh, scenario about our finances is in great doubt. But I feel this call that I need to give up a well-paid, secure job go to seminary. That surpasses all understanding. Does not make sense. Right? It's not prudent. It's not wise. <laughs> and yet, I prayed, as we were getting very close to setting my two-week notice, I said, is this the right thing to do? I am scared. And in that moment, I felt a peace that is from God that was not ordered to any of these things that I was looking at. It was just a piece of, you will be okay. And I had a great calm when I turned in my two-week notice and I walked out of that job to start seminary. And that piece did not lead me astray. We were always taken care of through all those years uh, in seminary. Are you seeking God's calm in the crisis? Don't go through the storm alone. Don't go through the storm according to your own understanding. Pray. Help me, Father. Give me the peace. 
Give me the calm of you seated on the throne. Now the third uh, revelation that we have here is Jesus is the one that is greater than the storm. Why storms? Why do we go through storms? Why are storms part of the disciples' life? Well, as we come to the end of this passage, we discover something. That this storm, as terrifying as it was, and as probably miserable and uncomfortable and, and regrettable of an experience as it was in the moment, we see that this storm brought the disciples to an awareness and a depth of faith that they would never have had had they not gone through the storm. We all love the, 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 the passage of, of Romans 8, which says, uh, I know that neither you know, height nor depth nor uh, strength nor weakness nor any of these things. And we go through swords and we go through infirmities. We go through all these different things. And, 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 and Paul says, I know that none of those things will separate us from the love of Christ. Well, how do you know that? Sometimes you have to go through the storms of an illness or a loss. Sometimes you have to go through the storms of insecurity and instability to see God's love and God's power and God's presence is greater. It really is there. And I'm really unable to be separated from it. And the other side of that storm is an awareness of a Jesus who is bigger than you had before the storm, right? The storms reveal Jesus' greatness and expose our disciples' need for faith. And how does Jesus deliver from the storm? He wakes up. And he says, silence, be still. In a moment, we go from the great storm to great calm. Immediately at his word, the wind is no longer howling and the waves are no longer billowing. I mean, it, it, the text says that the sea was smooth. It takes a long time for waves to dissipate. But at the word of Jesus, the waves go still and the wind goes silent. This is supernatural. And it happens simply by the word of Jesus. Jesus reveals his divine power and authority. He creates peace with only a word. In this passage, Jesus is revealing unequivocally, you don't just have a teacher in the boat. You have God in the boat. So what? What does Jesus boil this down to his disciples in verse 40? He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? You see, Jesus is saying that our fears are controlling us because we have not yet attained the faith that we should have in the gospel. He is saying 
that the faith I want you to have will set you free from the fears of the storm. This is a fact that we all must aspire to. If we believe in Jesus, we have no reason to fear the storm. Friends, we all live with fears. We all live with storms. And and some of us have our biggest storm still ahead. This passage is here to say Jesus has come to free us from our fears. So the question I want you to reflect on and I want you to pray on is this. What would your life look like if you applied the truth of this passage to your greatest fear? Do you know how much Jesus cares I know in the storm, that's probably the question we we struggle with the most. Does God love me? Does God care? Do you know how much he cares? Beloved, he went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for you. Do you recognize the one whose word has the power to say to the wind and the waves, stop, be still, did not stop the nails. He took the nails because he cared. Why? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he endure that? It is so that he could take the most furious storm of God's judgment from us that he went to the cross. To whatever storm you have been through is nothing compared to the storm of paying for your sins under the judgment of God. And upon the cross, Jesus said, I take the storm. Beloved, you can face any fear because the one who calls you to believe in him is the one who took the storm of your sin, overcame it, and rose from the dead. You can face any fear because you have Jesus' presence, his peace, and his power with you always. So let me ask you one more time. What would your life look like if you applied the truth of this passage to your greatest fear.